This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome everybody into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We're the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Alongside Ben Dowsett joining me, he's the associate editor of, of Salt City Hoops, uh, co-host of the show, very smart man himself. We're happy to have him on every week. Um, lot actually to talk about. We're, first of all, only 10 days away from Media Day. We are seven days away from Media Training Camp, which is my favorite Ooh, event of the season. Yeah. That's uh, where... Quinn Snyder and the rest of the Jazz's coaching staff has a chance to run us through some drills on the Zions Bank Basketball Center practice court. I really um, hope I get to come to that this year. I, yeah, I'm curious. Um, I, I mean, I hope you do too. First of all, I don't know how good you are at basketball, and like, I want to not that good. I can, I can game. D though. They, they play a little bit of scrimmage, right? Like, I can, yeah. I can D a little bit. Like, I can, I actually play some pretty decent defense. Okay. I, have very few other skills. Do you feel confident about guarding, say, Tony Jones? Yeah. Who is... No, I've wanted to guard Tony Jones because <laughs> Tony t- Tony talks a lot about his game, and there's no question Tony's a better basketball player than me. But I think I would surprise him with a little bit with my defense. Okay, wouldn't be bad. Are you, I just like as a scrappy defender? Yeah, like I hustle really well. I've good. I've better lateral mobility than you think I would from my, <laughs> given my size. Once you've like once you've seen me, and I contest everything and decent reflexes and so on and so forth. Okay, well. I mean, cool. Then I, I hope you get to play too. Just if only, if if anything, to see that matchup. Yeah. Um, as always, this is a social show, so you please feel free to uh, text, tweet, or call us. You can tweet us at Andy B Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett, uh, or you can call us at eight. Let's see, what is it? Eight seven seven three five three zero seven hundred. We also have a great show just in general for you. First of all, we've got some Eurobasket to talk about. Rudy Gobert's France was upset today. We'll talk about that game and more about how Rudy Gobert played in that game. Uh, we'll be talking about the Utah Jazz's ceilings and floors kind of going up and down the roster. And, you know, best case, worst case for each, each of the players on the Jazz's roster. We'll break that down. Uh, we've got Brad Tilly on. Brad's an analytics expert. He actually works in the healthcare industry, but he recently traveled to the San Francisco Sports Analytics Conference uh, Sports Analytics Summit, I should say, and he's going to share his insights about what he learned there in San Francisco about sport view, wearable technology, whole I'm bunch excited. of other stuff going on. I'm excited um, for that interview. It's we'll have be Tilly good. on the show at in the eight o'clock hour. We'll go around the NBA at eight thirty, and uh, Derek Favors had a Q and A that we'll cover at the end of the show as well. Nice. As always, you can listen to any part of the show on uh, our website saltcityhoops.com, or you can download it as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. I also want to make one quick note before we get into our, our Eurobasket, our regularly scheduled content, if you will, uh, that Trevor Booker, has, it has just been announced, underwent a minor outpatient surgical procedure uh, to repair a nasal fracture, which sounds like the fanciest way possible to say broken nose. Broken nose. Uh, I wonder how that happened. We didn't it ever does hear say, how that actually, happened. It says oh, it sustained did? in a recent pickup game. Okay. So it sounds to me, you know, we talked about this last week. The 15 of the 20 Jazz players are down here in Zions Bank Basketball Center playing pickup games, working on their craft, working together as a team to get better. 
naturally in these sort of games, injuries are going to happen. And Sounds if you could like, see one guy getting a little too intense and having somebody else throw him a bow to the face, it might be might be book, right? Yeah. No. Oh, no. <laughs> no question. Um, so, I mean, that's not particularly excite- uh, surprising that you know, little minor injuries are going to happen. Uh, but it sounds like it was a successful procedure uh, performed in Salt Lake by Dr. Richard Orlandi of U of U Healthcare. Oh, right, um, Richard, yeah. Expected to be ready for full ba- basketball activity at the start of training camp. Um, and furthermore, his breakfast assist cereal drive uh, scheduled for Saturday will proceed as planned. So he still feels well enough to give cereal away to the kids two days from now. Oh, thank goodness. Certainly should be able to play, to play basketball uh, come next week. Anyway. Just a little bit of news for you on, on the Utah Jazz front. Um, let's go into what happened earlier today, though, with the Eurobasket tournament. Uh, and in particular, this this incredible upset of uh, France versus Spain. Spain played really well. In, in particular, Pau Gasol was incredible. He was um, really good. <laughs> scored 40 points, which is incredible in the euro basket time frame of 40 minutes admittedly the game went into overtime so but still not the full 48 um and again matched up against rudy gobert for a large stretch of the game was able to kind of outduel rudy it has to be said yeah this was a pretty major reversal on last year when i think the enduring memory that a lot of people took away from that tournament was not only france upsetting spain which i, I first of all this was a bit of an upset today based on where they're at and who, which players they sent. I think last year France over Spain was a larger one based on yeah. what the expectations were pre-tournament. Like I think people still knew Spain are, are really good here. They don't have a Baca, they don't have Ricky Rubio, but they're still they're still a good team. Um, yeah, last year I think the enduring takeaway was you know Rudy Gobert, you know, sort of brought himself onto the scene, had a couple big blocks on Pau, played well against Mark as well, who was playing last year. That whole that was kind of the narrative moving forward afterward. This year, in a in a sense, I think you could say Pau got his revenge to a certain point. Yeah. He there were a f- uh, Rudy still played really well. First of all, he was plus eleven on the floor in a game that his team lost by what four or five points. So yeah, and really the his foul out was probably the biggest game changing yeah. moment of that game, where yeah. all of a sudden then Spain went on a six zero run, I believe it was, yeah. to take control of of overtime. Yeah, so he played. I don't think Gobert actually played badly, but there were periods where. But, through really no fault of his, he kind of got toasted by Gasol, and it was mostly just because Gasol was playing out of his mind. He was lofting, he, he lofted one hook shot, I can recall, that was like above the yeah. backboard because he had to get it so high up to get it over Rudy. Didn't even go in, it bounced up like three feet and then landed back in the basket like a lucky little, little I, thing. I mean, is there anyone, I guess the question is, and you and I both watched this game, is there anyone defending Pau Gasol that stops Pau Gasol no. from what he did today? No. I, I kind of agree. Maybe I, Marc Gasol. <laughs> like, <okay>. maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, I know, I, and what is it about Marcus Gasol that, that Rudy would have done better? Is it just a strength? A little bit it? more strength. There okay. were a few of those where the the reason Rudy's challenge wasn't quite where it should be normally is because he got knocked back just even even a half foot. All of a sudden, there's your challenge a half foot further away from where it normally would be. I thought so, too, and I also thought that maybe a more disciplined defender than Rudy would have not fouled him as yes. much and, and obviously not fouled out of the game. But uh, Gasol went to the free-throw line 18 times during that game, scoring 16 of his points from the free-throw line. A couple of the fouls um, were a little thin. Rudy's foul out was a little thin. Yeah. The foul was actually from a help side player coming in from the weak side who whacked Powell across the arm. Of course, they did miss one on Rudy's big block at the end of regulation to send the game to overtime that a lot of Jazz Twitter was freaking out about. They, Rudy fouled him pretty clearly. Yeah, they on, missed it. No question. I, I think Rudy fouled him on that block. Was was not straight up, and, and as Powell went up, uh, got him on the arm. Yeah. Did get the block afterwards, which is great, but, you know, 
probably was a foul. Yeah. Uh, talking about the the referees and the and the foul situation, Rudy Gobert actually tweeted after the game saying, "Hard to play when somebody can't touch you, but you can't touch him. Tough loss. It is painful to lose this way, but we will bounce back." Yeah. The more interesting, interesting thing uh-huh. is that Ricky Rubio of the Minnesota Timberwolves, and of course the Spaniard, was was not thrilled with this. No. Um, with this tweet, and, and in particular, he said that it was a what was it that he said? It, no He's, class. Yeah, he said. No he said well, first. So first, what he did was Nicholas Batum, also of France, tweeted something a lot more docile. He tweeted, "Congratulations to Spain, big win for them. Good luck moving forward." Type mm-hmm. of thing. He first of all, first Ricky did the quote tweet and tweeted class act, and then he tweeted a quote tweeted Gobert's tweet white at, right after and said, "Not a class act." See, and I. I have to disagree with little Ricky Rubio, who I love. I, you know, he's one of the most fun players to watch in the league, and he's just, you know, it seems like we've been watching him since he was like 15 or whatever. Um, but I, I, I don't see anything wrong with what Rudy Gobert said. Like, sure, he, he didn't give the credit to the Spaniards, but to say, hey, it's hard to play when the refs are fouling me out or are, you know, even if from an objective point of view, that's maybe you know an iffy statement right because i think right. they were giving some ticky tack fouls against spain i have they to gave them both ways but I, I don't think it's not a classy thing to say um yeah uh, i'm okay i i don't like wildly disagree with you i don't think it's like the end of the world that rudy gobert said that i and it, i in fact as someone who's a big rudy gobert fan i love it because it conforms perfectly with what we know about his personality mm-hmm. like that said if let's say the Jazz played a big playoff game or something, and then somebody on the opposing team said something like that after a loss, we would jump all over that guy. Like, and by we, I mean like collective Jazz Twitter. We would <laughs> it would be a, it would be over for that guy. He would his mentions would be a dumpster fire for three hours. Well, like, if if he, you know, it would be. And again, sure. that's not to say that it's not classy. I'm just saying that in other cases we'd get on people for doing the same thing which whether or not whether it's classy or just a good competitive spirit or what it is maybe this is just like a larger referee discussion but i I think it's funny how like it's not a classy thing to do to talk about referees when they're such a big part of the game right you know obviously coaches and players aren't allowed even to talk about them after games um lest they be fined by the nba obviously this is an nba competition so there he's kind of free from that but i actually I, I, I think that given the impact that referees have on basketball games i think it's reasonable to have like frank discussions about them and you know even criticize them if if you want the reason why i slightly disagree with you is and i think that the nba is while it's not perfect the nba has been right to crack down on this stuff is hmm. because I think you saw a period of time where coaches began to, at least in the NBA, coaches had began to have too much influence over referees because they began to, they started campaigning in the media. They started making real concerted efforts to go after these referees. But that, that should were, be on the refs to just be better then. You would think it should, but I think the I think the NBA has, I think they even went through and looked at trends and identified that there were situations where that sort of stuff was working. Uh, yeah, and I, they realized that there's, no matter what they want to do, there's a human element to this sort of stuff involved. And that that was, that I, I kind of don't mind it from that perspective. And my other point to, to that is, I, I just think that, Yes, there are have been games that have swung on referees' calls. Maybe it happens more often than it should, but I just think that's an inherent part of the game. Like sure. this isn't like, but it, it's a know. part of the game, just like a play is a part of the game. Like it, it is. we should be able to talk about the parts of the game. 
thing is, though, we could, you know, for example, How we can look I at can a sport like one part of basketball, but not another part. Because I think there are some parts that are more, uh, sort of more controllable than others, if you will. Like, so we could, for example, right now, we could talk about baseball, and we could say baseball could be made way better if they just took umpires out of the game and put, made computers call everything, because that that would pretty much work in baseball, yeah, thumbs right? Up. I'm for it. A game like basketball. That just can't happen. It's not possible. Right. There's too much subjective stuff going on in the game. That, and that the natural result of that is that humans have to call the game and that humans are going to make errors. But like, we, we should be able to talk about those errors in the same way that we talk about, say, Trey Burke missed jump shots. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I think it's fair enough. I just, my, I'm always the guy who's sitting there saying, stop blaming games on the refs. Yeah, That's no, the, I, I think sometimes it goes too far. But yeah. anyway, this is a whole side tangent yeah, to this. tangent it off. To this Eurobasket um, and Rudy Gobert's performance in it. I I, I was curious, too. I, I think the, your point here uh, in the notes, Jazz need to do a better job than France of finding Rudy uh, with the right timing. I saw that over and over again from yeah. France that they they were finding him either on the perimeter or Boris Dio on one of his fouls uh, kind of led him Rudy Gobert where he had no chance uh, but to make the offensive foul yeah. just because passed it straight into a guy basically right uh, and, and th- that sort of thing is unfair and uh, uh, Boris Dio is a great passer don't get us wrong but I, I think Quinn Snyder will have a better idea of how to use Rudy Gobert in an offense than than France did. Yeah, they. It's not that they didn't know how to use him. They were putting him in a ton of pick and roll, which is exactly what you should do when he's on the floor all the time. It's his only off, real mm-hmm. offensive value. But they weren't. They just their time. Their guards and their guys with the ball. They just didn't know what to do with it. They got completely snuffed out today against France. Uh, or against Spain, Spain yeah. Me. Tony Parker has not looked great except no. for about a three-minute stretch um, in, in this Eurobasket tournament. Yeah, and that was – are you talking about the end of the last game before yeah. this one? Yeah, he looked really good there for a bit. Other than that, he's looked terrible. His timing is completely off, but it's not limited to him as far as what we're talking about with Gobert here. Their whole team, they've had, you, you're not going to get long windows. And guess in the NBA, they're only going to get shorter with guys like that where – they have a, a beat or two where they flash open and you can hit them with a pass and still leave them time to do something. If that window closes, all of a sudden it's turnovers galore when you're trying to ask a guy like Rudy Gobert to first make a contested difficult catch and then turn and do something with bodies everywhere while he's moving. It's not easy for a guy his size. France did a really bad job of that, I think, frankly. And I, the Jazz, I think, are going to put specific work into, like, these are the times you have to hit Rudy with the ball so we can start making defenses move. And honestly, I wonder if the Jazz's point guards aren't worse at that than, than France's point guards, right? I mean, you look at Tony Parker and Nando DiColo, you probably expect those guys to be better at delivering the ball when and where it needs to be than Trey Burke uh, and the untested Real Neto and Bryce Cotton. Yeah. I, I think that's a real worry. You know, Gordon Hayward, Ronnie Hood, these guys are good passers, but I, I don't think that they're... I'd certainly call Tony Parker and and Decolo better passers than than Hayward and and Hood, sure, right? And and probably probably Brooks. I think I mean, Hayward draws a little more gravity of his own right now than sure. a guy like Tony Parker, which might make things a, give him a little more space in there. Part of the reason why Spain was so able able to just destroy their pick and roll today is they didn't give Parker basically any respect. Right. They they said if you want to fire away on these, we're fine with that, and they crowded up on Gobert. And yeah, uh, I think that's and Parker be some... ended up, by the way, at four for seventeen shooting. So they were absolutely right to give him all that space. Yeah, he was, and he he kept shooting those. It was like almost like a little bit of Trey Burkishness out there firing away from that mid range on shots he just knew he wasn't going to make. Yeah, which is is a shame. Yeah. Um, as far as Gobert for the overall tournament, let's just read his final stats. I'll read them off real quick. He played yeah. 22.6 minutes per game, averaged just under 10 points per game, so 9.9, 7.4 rebounds, 1.9 blocks, 1.1 steals. Shot 63% from the field. That's really good. He shot 72% from free throw. That's really good. Um, both those are, for Rudy, big improvements 
obviously, if he could sustain those at the uh, M- NBA level, that would be even better. Yeah, I mean, if you kind of look at what that is on a per 36 basis, I think that's basically kind of what we can expect from Rudy. Yep. Probably a little bit less on the field goal, per- on the percentages, right? Yeah. Um, but somewhere around 12 points per game and, and 9 to 10 rebounds per game in 30 minutes, for example, I think is, yeah. is a reasonable uh, stat line to expect from Rudy. Although I think, I think maybe trying to get him to 70% from the line could be a big point of emphasis for the Jazz this year because that, that transforms some things for him. If he goes from six, 62 to 70, doesn't sound like a huge deal. But with how often he gets fouled and how valuable it is when he can actually make teams pay for that, I think it does make a small difference. Yeah, I mean, I would say a small difference, but yeah. you're you're talking about like five points over the course of a season, right? Yeah, I guess. Probably maybe a little bit more than that. I'm, my math is a little bit off, but regardless. Right. It's, I, I would rather focus rather than on incremental free throw percentage jumps. I would focus on more diverse offensive moves. Yeah, that's fair. Right? Um. And I, uh, one other point, uh, you you mentioned Gobert's energy level uh, again. Clearly wanted to win. Clearly was involved in the defense. Um, you mentioned his last second block on uh, Pau Gasol to kind of push the game into overtime. Uh, he he still looks like he's the most important part of France's defense by far. Oh yeah, by a mile. He was running the floor still really well. He didn't really ever seem any have any too many times where he seemed fatigued or anything like that. Um, and that's good. And when they played such, uh, you know, they, his minutes weren't as high as they would be per game in the in the NBA, obviously. But they played a lot of games kind of in a compact period of time, like more than the NBA would play, actually. And mm-hmm. they, it's good that he came out with no, as far as we know, no ill effects there, no injuries. And that's I tweeted that earlier today. Silver lining, he's healthy and coming home, and his next action will be with the Jazz. And maybe he's got just a little bit of fire under him now because he wanted to win this summer and they didn't win. Yeah, no, that's fair. I would say the downside to that is he's more likely to get injured in the next tournament, the qualifying tournament for the Olympics, right? Where they'll play True. more games than, say, if they if yeah. he would, would qualify for one more game in this tournament. Well, silver lining indicates that uh, <laughs> it's not a all. bad thing happened and that this, we're trying <laughs> to find the positives were dark, out of it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, no doubt. All right, well, let's change uh, gears a little bit here to one of your articles on Salt City Hoops this, this week. Uh, I kind of asked you earlier in the week, and, and you did a great job of, of doing this piece or two pieces for Salt City Hoops. Yeah, we should make that known. This was Andy's idea. I, I just wrote it. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm, I'm, I was just kind of curious to see what your opinions would be. Uh, we asked you to find what the ceiling and what the floor is for every player on the Jazz's roster. And let's go ahead and start with the point guards, and we'll be talking about this for the next couple of segments, um, not just the point guards, but the ceilings and floors, uh, about what, what the ceilings and floors are for the Jazz point guards. In fact, you have them as the worst of all of the Jazz's guard rotation are, are the three point guards. I do, and I, I some some folks like we had our our, our fellow SAH writer Dan Clayton took umbrage. Not, that's a, uh, an advanced way of saying it, but you know, <laughs> debated a couple of those guys, and I. I, yeah, I have beef. You and me, Dan. We got beef, bro. Um, it was it, he made the point that I th- and I th- I think it's fair to say this. You could have so I put Joe Ingles and Elijah Millsap w- as one entry at fifth, uh, and I had each of the point guards with a lower potential ceiling than them. That being Burke, Neto, and Cotton. I think you could put Neto and even, maybe you could put all three of the point guards as a higher ceiling than those guys. Because yeah, I, I was th- surprised. There's, there, there's so much younger. I may have erred slightly in that area. I guess. I in part embraced like realistic ceiling, but then in other parts I wasn't at all. So that was kind of a mistake. Is be like with certain guys, like I, I in Rudy Gobert's section, I wrote that he is tip top ceiling included in being a fringe MVP candidate. I don't which, think like, that's crazy. It's not, but it's I think like, that's, that's less a, crazy than some of your other ceilings. Actually, you think so? Yeah, like okay. uh, I thought your Rodney Hood ceiling, for example, was, was too high. Was higher than Rudy Gobert's ceiling 
relative to their skills right Interesting. Now. Anyway. Huh. Okay. Um, yeah, that said, I actually also think that something uh, debatable part of this is the order that I ranked the three point guards in. I gave Trey Burke the lowest ceiling of the three and gave Neto and Cotton not very much higher ceilings, but slightly higher. My reasoning as far as, and I've had Cotton the highest, and my reasoning there was the same as the piece I did on Cotton a few weeks ago, arguing that he could, not will, but could be a, a good option for the Jazz as a starter, and that was shooting. We just have by far the largest track record that Cotton is a shooter, an up and above average shooter at every level he's played at thus far. See, but that's not ceiling, right? Like ceiling, uh, I imagine, say, Trey Burke becoming the shooter that he showed in college rather than the pros. But I, th- I act, the thing is, like, I don't know if you can look at Cotton's numbers in college. I'm pretty sure he was a better three point shooter than Trey Burke was on like a, a decently yeah, significant volume. You're right. And. That I think his te- his potential template as a shooter is greater than either of these other two guys, even if he has certain other deficiencies in there. And when we're talking about these guys who do have so many deficiencies kind of across the board, each of them has potentially large areas that they're just not functional in at the NBA level. Knowing that, if one of them has a chance to be a way better shooter than the others, I, I think I'm looking at that guy as the one who I want uh the one who I want is the as the highest ceiling. Again, right. it's it, by the way, started this article off by saying this is an insanely subjective subject that basically you can there's so many different ways to look oh, at totally. it. Oh, right? totally. I mean, you can you can argue about all of this. I just just a quick point. Uh Trey Burke's three-point shooting percentage 36.7, uh Bryce Cotton's 36.1. Real close. Burke's but that being said, Burke faced harder competition, right? He did, although uh, yeah, he did. Although then he did, but Cotton was the only guy on his team who could do anything. In yeah. college, and he saw a lot of attention. From not that Burke didn't see a lot of attention. No Burke did as well. Yeah, I mean, as the college player of the year, you're going to. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, I I kind of agree with the the people you're imagining as the the people who disagreed with you. No, I I think real people agreed disagreed with you. But I I guess I would agree with those people more than I agree with you on the ranking of those point guards. That you think it should be in a slightly different order. Yeah. I what do. would your order be? I I think it's probably Burke Nutto Cotton. So you in the exact opposite order. Yeah, that I, I, would I really have. would. And I think that Burke again has shown enough skills in different parts of his career that you can imagine him becoming you know a 43% field goal but shooter a 36% skills, three point shooter and actually passing it sometimes but which skills though which one, i mean okay at michigan he was a guy he was a guy that was thought of as a shooter at michigan he's not you know 36% from 3 is good it's not like fantastic it's not like knockdown yeah um was he i mean he could pass at the college level that's something that really hasn't translated at the nba level what what other i mean did he ever really have any other skills? He's always been small. He's always been kind of slow. Yeah. He's always been a bit of a defensive liability at basically every level. Yeah, I, I would say that we've seen more defense from him at the end of last season. Um, and again, not above average, but I don't think any of those guys' ceilings are above average def- defense. Uh, right. Maybe Neto's, but not, I don't know. And Neto is really hard to define, by the way, just because we've seen nothing of him at this level. And yeah. he could and he actually has a pretty wide range, right? Like if it turns out he can shoot when he's only shooting spot ups, shooting nothing else, and it turns out he can defend really well at the NBA level, all of a sudden it's like, hey, this guy might be a good player. I mean I mean I, I for Neto, for me, I just think that he you're right that I, I, I can imagine him becoming a Ricky Rubio light, but I can't imagine him becoming a much more than that. No, no chance, basically. I mean, and, unless and he can really shoot, which I, there's no evidence. I of. don't know that Trey Burke's ceiling is I think Trey Burke's ceiling is higher than Ricky Rubio light. I think it could be uh, Mike Conley light. I don't know that I agree with that. That's fine. No, I I, uh, I think, let's be clear. I mean, I have been known as a Trey Burke hater, but... You have. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think 
you know, I think best case he becomes maybe like Steve Blake during his uh, during his peak. I just I really don't like I don't know that I can call Trey Burke's ceiling that good of a shooter. Wasn't Blake like close to a forty percent three point shooter during okay, those but, years? So Trey Burke hit thirty eight point four percent in his senior year in Michigan, or not senior year, but his last year in Michigan. Right. I, yeah. I, I, I you know you can imagine it. You can. Yeah, and I guess if that's the way you define ceiling, which it could be, then I mean, no, because it really could be. But it's not even that hard for me to imagine it, I guess. Yeah, and this is, by the way, guys, why these conversations can go on forever. (laughs) Because it's just, there's, everybody looks at it with a slightly different scope, right? Maybe Andy's Andy's cap for what Trey Burke could be as a shooter is, you know, three or four percent higher than mine. And that might make like a significant difference as to what their ceiling is over their career. So, Definitely. Yeah, All right, well, we'll keep we, going with yeah, it. Yeah, that's the thing is we're going to talk about this for a little bit, actually. Um, but we do have to take a break now. That's coming up next. We're going to be talking about the rest of the guards' rotation, their ceilings and floors. That's Gordon Hayward, Rodney, uh, Rodney Hood, Dante Exum, the whole nine yards there of the guard rotation. That's next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700. Our producer, John LaFollette, is very excited about what just happened in the Chiefs-Broncos game. Rest in peace, Peyton Manning's career. <sighs> Kansas City Chiefs uh, got the pick six on Peyton Manning, 13-0. About to be 14-0. Yep. Anyway, that's your football update for now. We just came back from uh, talking about the point guard rotation and the ceilings and floors thereof. Just a quick note, I wanted to mention that Raul Neto is actually six months older than, than Trey Burke, mm-hmm. um, which, which is interesting, I think, has a little bit of, a, of an effect on the, the idea of their ceilings. I mean, Trey Burke's kind of old to us at this point, and Raul Neto's so new to us, but you have to keep in mind that their ages probably determine a lot of how much they're able to develop. Um, Neto's obviously, obviously been a professional for a long time. It's an open question whether and how much his game will change. Yeah, both of them are reaching the age where it's like soon you are what you are like yep. there's not a whole lot of room left so yes uh which i think is is point uh is, is a good point for the when we talk about Derek favors and gordon hayward's ceilings as well because right. i think they're pretty close to where they are yeah uh but that's coming up let's talk about first joe ingles and elijah Millsap. you had them kind of in the same category there uh i guess why was that and what do you what do you see for these guys ceilings and floors well part of it was written like entirely too many <laughs> words and i wanted to shorten it up and the, and i do have them next to each other i don't think their ceilings are like exactly the same but i also have them kind of in that same category of like since they're the 27 year olds on the team they're not going to really add a whole lot to their games like yeah. neither they both of them not that they're at their ceilings they could do what they do better but they're not going to do any new things there's not really much that we're going to see new from them who do you think has a higher ceiling I would agree. It's two. I would agree. It's Elijah because he's his one elite skill is better than anything Joe Ingles does. Yeah, I I would agree with that too. I mean, I I see basically. I can imagine Elijah Millsap's game becoming what he was defensively last year, and then he showed an ability to get to the free throw line in the D League. And if he becomes like uh, Corey Maggette is too strong, but someone who can like draw fouls and be like passable on the floor yeah. offensively, then I think you know he becomes Tony Allen light, which is which is a nice player. I don't know that Joe Ingles will ever be that. No, and Joe Ingles isn't a guy that you can say you know we're up 
or we're up four points with 35 seconds left in the game. Elijah, get in there and shut this guy down. Uh, He's yeah. this guy's not scoring anymore. Like that's what that's what we're doing. On the other hand, he is nice to have in a second unit um, that does have so many defensive players to be able to kind of open things up and, mm-hmm. and play make a little bit and and do his kind of herky jerky slow man yeah. drives. Forty plus percent from three after the All Star break last year, so he definitely found his stroke once he started being okay with actually shooting it when he was open. <laughs> Yeah, he did need to take a lot more shots. He he did not take very many last year, and, and that's something I'm excited to see. That's play a big, more like the end of the year. Big theme across the board for the Jazz. Shoot more threes. When they're open, shoot them. Yep. That's and what you need to do. They have, Teams are going to leave them open as they go into the paint to, to guard against Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert. Yeah. Alec Burks, um, what do you see as his ceiling and floor? I mean, we months now, yeah. longer, nine months. Like, what, what, do you, what do you see from Alec Burks in terms of where he can go? Well, as I said in the piece, I think Alec's ceiling mostly at this point is between his ears. He's, there's, he's not going to have too much more development physically, right? He's like 24 now, isn't he, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah. Um, that said, I think we, he's, the, of the current Jazz players, the, the most blank template. Because we we've heard the guys talk to a man about how it and Quinn Snyder talk about how it took them real time last year to adjust to what he was doing. It took them months to pick it up. Well, by the time that happened, Alec Burks wasn't on the floor anymore. He was he was gone. He had had his injury, and I think that while he was still around and he was still learning with the rest of the team, some of that stuff just comes while you're on the floor. Like some of you just pick certain things up while you're on the floor, and you get the chemistry, and you get oh, coach is telling him this is why I'm supposed to be standing here or whatever. Yeah, Alec didn't have any of that. And I think, or he had a very limited amount of it while everybody else around him was still kind of putting it together as well, right? And I think he's always been one of the players that you wonder about with the Jazz of how quickly does he pick up things? How quickly is he going to be okay with deviating from the type of style he likes to play on offense? That's been the real question with him and with coaches in the past, especially Ty Corbin, is that Ty would try to teach him things, and quite frankly, it never really caught on for whatever reason. Now, that could be said of a lot of Jazz guys, too. You know, Rudy Gobert didn't break out last season either, but... Uh, it's a little bit of a worry, I would say. Yeah, a little bit. And the the defensive stuff that we've talked about on this broadcast before, about how he has a bad tendency to space out away from his guy a lot of the time, stands in the middle of no man's land where it's like he's not helping the ball, but he's also too far away from his guy to get back and contest a shot or something. Mm-hmm. Those types of things need to tighten up. And if it turns out that he's just not the kind of guy mentally who can do that, and there's guys like that who they just yeah. they just don't, that's just not their thing. They don't pick stuff up as well. If that happens, his ceiling is pretty limited. And the other thing I think that could, you know, I didn't want to talk too much about injuries and things like that, but it definitely affects his ceiling that he could have lingering effects from that injury, although you would hope it would be a positive because he said this is the first time his shoulder's healthy in his whole NBA career. I look at it as more of a positive than a negative. I mean, sure, I guess he could separate it again or whatever and and have recurring effects, but to me, I, I think... Having it fully healthy for the first time since his college days is is a good thing. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Rodney Hood. I think uh, let's go ahead and just start again. What what's your opinion on his ceiling and and really his floor? I really think Rodney's ceiling is as one of the premier kind of combo wings in the league. Who a guy who can we saw flashes last year of a guy that can punish teams both off the dribble, like when they're trying to come underneath his pick and rolls. And he can work as a spot-up shooter when he's away from the ball. He's lethal in, in both those things when he's healthy and on his game. His pick-and-roll game is is just fantastic for a guy that age, the way he shields guys on his back, his patience, all the stuff that he's got going there. And he showed us more defensively than I think we were really ever, maybe even ever in his whole career, expecting to see out of him last year. And if you add just a little bits of expected development from there, I know he's a little bit older, so he may have limited development left. Um, I really think he's got 
kind of the the all those tools that you'd potentially look for from a you know a guy I put wrote it in the piece guys that can run the pick and roll really well that are like great options in the pick and roll can also shoot the spot up and are above average defenders those those are really good players like there's yeah. not a million of those in the league yeah i you said he may have an all-star and and uh, parents in his future you said listen it's not likely but this is about ultimate ceilings and this is within his yeah. i think that's about like fringy all-star is is probably his absolute ceiling yeah um he doesn't have like the top level athleticism that the really really elite all-stars do you know the all-star starters yeah um but you're right that he's he's got the offensive uh variety that you like to see he's good defensively um yeah i mean kind of uh, i guess this is weird to say but kind of what gordon hayward's become is that fair in a sense uh, yeah a big thing for me the the difference between what rodney showed us last year one of the big differences between rodney showed us last year and what gordon has become is as a distributor gordon has Mm -hmm. become really really good at leveraging his own scoring abilities into setting other guys up rodney wasn't there last year at all it was only like 2.8 assists per per 36 minutes or something like that that's going to have to go up if he's going to continue to be a lead ball handler. Like He's going to have to be able to make that happen. Yep, those secondary skills, I would say also rebounding. He's not as good of a rebounder as Hayward yep. showed last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Hayward. Uh, again, you said he realized much of his long-term potential last season, and, and I agree. Like Now that he's 25... I think mostly this is this is what we're going to see from yep. Gordon Hayward. You can see like little you know niches to his game added on. Um, you know maybe a different move here or there. But in terms of production, I don't expect anything wildly different. No, maybe I'm, I am hoping that maybe as guys like Hood and Burks come along as ball handlers, maybe Gordon doesn't have to take such huge load on the offensive end. Mm-hmm. He can become a slightly better spot up shooter, maybe a slightly better defender, just because he has more energy to put into those things. I think that's possible, yeah. but again, that's not new skills. That's just becoming better at stuff he already does. One new skill, maybe, maybe, is in the post. We've always wondered why we haven't seen him there. He's got good fundamentals. He shoots a, one of the best turnaround jumpers in the league for any for any wing. I've never understood why he doesn't go down there. Maybe he'll break that out at some point in his career. We saw guys like LeBron do it late. Of course, Gordon is not LeBron. Yeah, but but I, I think he's you know much more comfortable with the turnaround jump shot and in different spots than the, the the low post block. Right. Um. That being said, I think we will see more of Gordon Hayward at the four this season. Yeah. I don't know that if that means we'll see him on the post necessarily, but you know it kind of makes more sense to have him as one of the perimeter players in a four up one downs kind of system. Yeah. But, and that's part of why we probably haven't seen him in the post so much, as he's always playing with two big guys, and it's kind of hard to find space for a, a wing to go into the post in those scenarios. Right. Dante Exum number one. Um, in terms of highest ceiling for you, which I of wings and guards of wings and guards, sure. Which I think is uh, I think is interesting. Like, sure, Dante, I I struggle with that just because Dante is so young and and is athletic. But I I don't know if he has quite that ceiling that of Gordon Hayward. For example. you don't think so? I, I I definitely do. Again, if we're talking about a maximization of his physical profile, mm-hmm. and especially with a guy so young in Exum who could still have so much room to improve his skills when he comes back into the league, I I do think his ceiling is higher. I think as a I think he's already maybe as good of a defensive player as Hayward has ever been at his position agreed. in his career. And he's again, these are skills that Eximus does not have yet, and this is their low probability scenarios that he eventually gets every single one of them. But if he really does refines that handle, becomes a guy that you can count on with the getting into the lane, things like that, he's already a great passer. He, we saw the template for a guy that can be a good shooter, even though he wasn't. Again, like I just don't think that's anywhere close to impossible. If all of those things happen, he really could be the best point guard in the NBA. Wow, for a period. I, I don't think that's that crazy to say. He's six six. 
Like he's six six and he's as fast as like almost as fast as guys like Chris Paul. When you, if you're that size and you can do nearly all the same things they can skills wise, which again I just don't think that's out of his realm of possibility given how young he is and how much room he still has. I I think that makes that could make him one of the premier players in the league at his position. And I, if you've got a guy like that, I think that's that I think that's higher than what Gordon Hayward is right now. I would say though that he doesn't have. Uh, I, I mean, I uh, let's be clear. I like Dante Exum a lot. I think he has a, a very high ceiling. But I don't know if it's possible that he learns the dribbling and, and ball handling skills that he needs in order to be an elite, high usage player um, who scores a lot of points. I think it is very unlikely that he learns all those things. I do not. I don't think it's impossible though. Okay. And because I'm only talking about his super ceiling, and yeah, if. A million times out of a million, Gordon Hayward. I would take Gordon Hayward for the next you know, ten times years. Out of, uh, okay, a lot of times out of a lot of times because <laughs> Gordon's proven that he's that he's already reached this level, and there's so, so little guarantee. I, exactly, and I just can't think of a player who's been at twenty and hasn't had those ball handling and dribbling skills, and then got them later on to be the player that they ended up being. Probably not to the degree that I'm hoping for. That wouldn't be necessary for him to hit that full ceiling. Like I say, super and super super duper unlikely. But I think the top end of his ceiling still remains extremely high. And, of course, his ceiling might be lower than any other guy on the team. So his variability is massive. His floor might be. Or, excuse yeah, me, yeah, his lower. floor might be lower than any other guy on the team. I, I, I think I agree with that, too. I mean, just looking at what – if Dante doesn't improve, you know, he's a specialist defender. He's a he's a Quinton Ross it. kind of player. Yeah. And that absolutely could happen, especially yeah. with an injury that's, you know, that does take a year away from the development cycle. Mm-hmm. Or six months, anyway. Yeah. Depending on what your ACL time frame is. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway. All right, one more uh, block of players left to go. Uh, the the big players, the Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, Trey Lyles, and even the new jazz man, Tibor Pleiss. We'll talk about them next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Back into the Salt City Hoop Show, Andy Larson, Ben Douthat joining you. If, by the way, if you guys have any opinions on the ceilings and floor discussion, uh, feel free to chime in on Twitter. You can always tweet me at Andy B. Larson with an E-N or Ben underscore Dowsett. Uh, I don't know, spelled D-O-W-S-E-T-T. <laughs> yeah. We've had some good discourse on it, both in the yeah. comments section of the actual articles and on Twitter. I like that. It's it's fun as long as you're nice and respectful. And then we've got Brad Tilly coming up in the 8 o'clock hour um, at 8 o'clock telling us about his trip to the San Francisco Sports Analytics uh, Seminar or uh, what was it called? That's I think symposium. That's what it was. So, Something I think so. with an S. Yeah. Anyway, uh, summit. That's summit. what it is. Yeah. Thank you. Um, let's talk about Tibor Pleiss though, and and the rest of the Jazz's bigs. Uh, so Tibor Pleiss, to me, you had him at the bottom of the of, of the Jazz's ceiling conversation. It's funny because like I agree, but I, I disagree just because I've heard so much about Tibor Pleiss from the Jazz's front office at this point that right. he's like this incredible three point shooter, and he's also a great pick and roll big, and he's not terrible defensively, and can like decently rebound. And if all of those things are true, he's actually like actually a really good player, right? Yeah, the thing is that. Many of those I've seen to be mostly true at a slightly different level than this one, but the big one, the one that would really raise his ceiling the most, the shooting, I understand that the Jazz are really really big on that, and they've seen more of him one-on-one than I ever could imagine, but we've seen none of it during a game ever, yeah. ever, like at any point in his career ever. And he's been playing for a while. He's 26 years old. It's not like he's 19, and it's just like he hasn't done this yet. He's going to do it soon. Like, we just have never, ever seen it, and... 
I I guess I again, and this is just where you come to you know a question of how strictly are we talking ceilings? Are we talking that he really could be like a Dirk Nowitzki forty one percent three point shooter at the NBA level? Right. Because yeah, if he could do that, then yeah, his ceiling's a little bit higher than I probably play. It's higher than Trevor Booker, and I can definitely tell you that. And, and I would say that I I might think that Tibor Plyce's ceiling is higher than Trevor Booker's. Um, I could, and that's if you want to go that way, totally fair. I can't can't really argue for kind of the. Uh, you're right that their ages are a little bit of the same, but you can imagine like this new element of of Tibor Plyce's game that apparently we haven't seen, and again in his professional career has been unlocked somehow by the Jazz. And like the way they talk about him, that's kind of the way it sounds almost, right? Yeah. Although they're also, I mean, I did a piece about Trevor Booker like two weeks ago, and how all he needs to do is start shooting a bunch more threes, and he yeah. could be viewed as a stretch big potentially as well. But then he's not seven three. You're right, and that's a big difference. Being I, yeah, and he like Plyce being seven three, he has to be guarded by a center, and getting a center to come out on the wind to be forced to come out to the perimeter with him, that's a big deal. Seth Part now looks at rim protection metrics. There's a big gap between centers and power, mm-hmm. even between centers and power forwards, like big old gap. And not that I think Tibor Plyce will be a good defensive player, maybe ever, but I think you can imagine his defensive ceiling being higher than and than Trevor Booker's. Yeah, I think you can. Although his strength is nowhere close, yeah, which is no, a concern. I agreed. Yeah. Um, Booker himself was next. Let's, yeah, let's talk about Booker's ceiling. I mean, you, you have high hopes for him. I do, and most of that relates to, again, I, I really think there's a big thing that, that guys who shoot more from three just inherently make defenses think they have to think about them more mm-hmm. often, and that means something. And I really think they're going to put an emphasis on Booker shooting anytime he's remotely open from three this year. They're going to have him hang out beyond the, the line more often. I think they're going to tell him, like, hey, listen— Stop standing in the mid-range area. If you're standing around, stand around outside where your guy has to go as far away from you as possible to give help somewhere else. Yep. I think they're going to do that. And, again, it's the same thing. He's not going to develop new skills, but if he emphasizes this skill a lot more and it turns out that he can do that at a higher volume without his efficiency suffering, his his, val- his ceiling of value goes up. And I did think that Trevor Booker turned down a lot of three-point shots last year that he could have taken. He right. just kind of felt uncomfortable with this kind of new element he had added to his mm-hmm. game. If he takes you pointed out that he has a higher three-point percentage than Draymond Green. Yeah. If he does take about as many threes as Draymond Green, or you know, even a third less, let's say, he's still a, a much bigger uh, threat on the offensive end than he showed last season. Absolutely. And I like the things that Trevor Booker does. He's He's got pretty good, really good guard skills, I would say, for a power forward. Definitely. Um, and you pointed out that he actually leads the Jazz's bigs in passing uh, in terms of assists per 48 minutes as well. Yeah, and a potential assists as well uh, by, yeah, the, assist by the sport view data. So, yeah, I think he's got a reasonable ceiling. Trey Lyles? Is yeah. another who's interesting. Obviously the rookie. Yep, and I think his the gap between his ceiling to floor is larger than anyone on the team but Exum. Uh, okay. Although Exum has like a sizable lead over anybody in that category, I think. Um, Lyles at his ceiling could be the sort of Draymond Green-ish type of playmaking four that you kind of want in the league and might even be the kind of guy who could be a, even slightly better at center because he's a, little, he's a little bigger than a guy like Draymond, has a longer wingspan. Um Again, those are everything going right. That's if he becomes a shooter. That's if he bulks up a little bit and can be a little better as a rebounder. I think defensive rebounding is going to be a big area of concern for him in the NBA. That's if he has the smarts to defend multiple positions and can defend out on the perimeter. 
Not a guarantee, even though he spent a lot of time in college doing it. That's if he picks up some passing skills and learns how to play an emotion system. Again, a ton of ifs here, which is what makes his floor also still pretty low while his ceiling is very high. But if he checks every single one of those boxes over his career, he could be a very, very good player who allows the Jazz to go both big and small without even actually changing the players on the court, which is a really really big advantage, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I I see him as less just because he doesn't have the defense of someone like Draymond Green, but I think he, uh, and I don't think he ever will. No, Um, probably not. But uh, I, I see him more of like a, a rich man's like Patrick Patterson type rather than yeah. um, a, a poor man's Draymond Green, if that makes sense. If he could be that plus he like actually runs the occasional pick and roll himself, stuff like that. Like, you know, that's not something that Patrick Patterson ever does. Right. right. Um, <laughs> if he could be that sort of a guy eventually. Yeah. You know, I think you could uh, you could see him there. Uh, Derek Favors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, to me, he he's 24. Uh, I believe he turns 25 this season. Uh, I think. Again, I think he's mostly where he is. He mentioned in his in his uh, Facebook Q and A that he's added a new secret talent to his game um, this off season. I'm curious to see what that is. Really he said it was it. not the corner three point shot, or he said <laughs> that he, he didn't think coach would let him get many corner threes. So therefore, th- I doubt that that's his new secret weapon. Um, but again, like you can you can see what Derek Favors was at the end of last season, and if you know if he plays eighty two games like that, I think that's basically his ceiling. He was so so impactful in terms of plus minus. Yep. At the end of last year, that if maybe his shooting expands, that's the the cap yeah. of his ceiling right there. Is if he ever does get a three point shot, and finally highest ceiling on the entire team in my opinion by like a reasonable amount to me, Rudy Gobert. Pretty so obvious. You said Dante Axum might be the best point guard in the league. That's a pretty high ceiling. You it think is. Rudy Gobert might be the best player in the league? No, but he could be. There's could a be there's the a ceiling. There's the a league. ceiling where he could be by far the best defensive player in the league, and yeah, I would say yes, the best center, and also be a guy that didn't that was at least an average or better offensive player because of his skill rolling to the hmm. hoop and what he can do with the ball. That's a ceiling again. Yeah, ceiling. no, I agree. Like I, I think you look at what he does defensively, and basically he's there in terms of his defensive ceiling, in terms of impact. You know, he can do a few things smarter, um, but it's really easy to see what his defensive ceiling is because heck, he already was so close to the defensive player of the year. Yeah, it's just the offense needs to come along with it. Um, pick and roll big is pretty good, and and you can imagine him using his length and and versatility to get. I you know if he gets a hook shot if he gets a fifteen foot jumper shot um, things become really hard to guard they like impossible to guard if he ever gets those things he showed a little bit with both hands on the block this summer you, no idea if that's going to work at the NBA level Powell shut him down with that kind of stuff today pretty hard and, and even with that it's not like he was a huge scorer no. he averaged under ten points per game during during these hero basket right. games if you could ever even get it to the point where like five possessions a game you can dump it to him in the post and be like hey do something meaningful that'd be huge I do have a prediction that. I think this last series of segments may be may have the potential to make us the most embarrassed of any show segment that we've done. Um, oh, really? Just in terms of like, go if if we went and listened to this nine months from now, <laughs> yeah, right. and we're like, what are we talking about, Rudy Gobert? Like, you know, yeah. I could totally see expectations and again this is ceiling and floors, but we'll know so much more about these guys after next season. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, we got to go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking to Brad Tilley. Uh, He went to the Sports Analytics Summit in San Francisco. We'll talk a little bit with us about what he learned at that summit that's next on the Salt City Hoop Show. You're listening to it on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. We're working on getting Brad Tilly on the line. 
Remember, Brad was uh, an attendant of the Sports Analytics uh, Summit in San Francisco last week. He's writing a piece for Salt City Hoops, kind of explaining what his experience was like and, and three things he learned at, at the conference. In fact, sounds like we've got Brad on the line. Let's go ahead and bring him in. Brad, how are you? Doing great. How are you guys? We're doing well. Hey, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for, for writing this article for Salt City Hoops. Yeah, no problem. Go ahead and, and start and, and tell me what you, uh, kind of the the context of this conference, if you will. You know, how was it that you attended? What? How many teams were there? How many people were there? Uh, when was it? How long was it? That sort of thing. Yeah, so it was uh, last week in San Francisco. Um, and uh, I guess my motivation for going, I, I work in uh, healthcare data right now um, for my current job. But uh, kind of the dream job for me is to be able to do that same type of thing with sports data. And uh, so this was kind of like a career exploration trip as well as just networking, trying to meet people. Um, so it was kind of a lot of fun uh, kind of to geek out with, with other guys that love sports data. Um, but, yeah, there was a, they said that there was about 300 attendees. Um, so it was no... Uh, Sloan Sports Conference, which some of our listeners might know about, which draws like thousands of people and every team attends. Here, it was kind of more regional. Uh, the, the Warriors were there and actually presented um, the, the Suns as well. And then uh, the Lakers, which actually probably might surprise some people that they actually have an analytics department and that they were there in attendance. Yeah, we were. I was going to ask you that later on, but we're there right now. The Lakers got a lot of sort of negative publicity this year. They were named by ESPN as one of the teams that has that is a not, total non-believer in analytics. Um, it seems like from your uh, experience over the weekend, there maybe it's just depends on who you talk to, sort of a thing, and that maybe it's just that they're not publicizing their analytics. Yeah, I, I talked to two of the the guys that were uh, in the analytics department for the Lakers, um, and I brought up this article actually with with them. Um, I don't know how I got the gumption to do that, but I just kind of asked them, like, hey, this is the stigma. You know, you guys are here. Like, what do you think about that article that, you know, ranked you guys as a non-believer and in the bottom five of all NBA teams and your use of data? And uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to quote exactly what he said because it wasn't a nice word, and I don't know if I can say that on the radio. Just Um, say bleep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well my mom's listening to this too so i probably should not <laughs> repeat the word um but yeah he just said we don't we haven't been publicizing it like other teams we've been actually doing analytics for years and think that we do it better than a lot of teams and uh so you know the conflicting stories because um, byron scott their coach doesn't seem to buy into it and it would. I don't know. We all like the, the LOL Lakers thing that you guys always talk about and how kind of dysfunctional they are. And it would even add to it more if they had these, these guys. One of them's a PhD in stats, really impressive, has about like four master's degrees according to LinkedIn. And the other guy I talked to is actually there. He's been coaching in the NBA in college for decades, and he's kind of the liaison between the analytics department and the coaches. So, I mean, if they had these resources and they're still just, you know, not using them, that would be, you know, amazing. No, I, I actually think that might be the case. You know, we, we talked to Byron Scott when the Lakers came to uh, Salt Lake, and then I actually went on a road trip for a Lakers game in L.A., 
Uh, and we, we asked Brian, Byron Scott if he had ever actually, he, he talked about the advice that the analytics department gave him, but then when he, we were asked, you know, when have you actually used that advice? Can you point to a time when that actually helped? He couldn't think of anything. So yeah. that, that's a red flag to me is that you do have a, this coach who said, uh, for example, that three-point uh, Three-point shooting can take you to the playoffs, but not win you the championship. <laughs> I think that's been roundly disproven at this point. I think, you know, that's a real question was whether or not the coaching staff is using the analytics that the Lakers uh, staff are getting them. Now, that being said, there's a front office, right, in terms of acquiring players. And maybe they're acquiring smart players as, as you know, uh, decided by the analytics. Yeah. Now, Brad. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say one theme that kind of popped up with that, Andy, during the conference was that, the analytics employees or the work they do should really be working to help the coaches and kind of take their their wisdom and all their expertise and just kind of like support it. And, you know, if there are discrepancies, call those out in a politically correct way. But that was definitely a, a big uh, part of the conference. Definitely. So, Brad, uh, one of the things that's going to be in your piece tomorrow that you mentioned is that there was uh, there were some waves made by I think I think we think of of SportView technology as sort of one of the leaders in this field as far as statistics go at least. And there's another game in town, and it's one that both Andy and I have a little bit of experience with in, in Vantage Sports. And you were saying those guys, their presentation kind of made some of the biggest waves of the weekend. Yeah, it, it did. It kind of got. Everyone was buzzing after the presentation, but during the presentation, uh, by his name is Philip Mayman from Vantage. He's the chief analytics officer. Everyone was you could kind of hear a pin drop in there. Um, the the basic basic crux of what they do, kind of, I don't know if our listeners know about SportView. Do you guys think I should kind of explain that first? They, they know uh, enough about it. It's the, the computerized tracking, basically, guys. That we cite we cite it all the time here for distance away from field goals and so on and so forth. It's computerized yeah. though. Whereas Vantage, as you'll tell us here. Yeah, so, so SportView, there's a ton of data. Vantage really tries to get at the less is more philosophy. And so they they train up these analysts, which they're more kind of like just grunt employees that, that watch every second of every NBA game and track, you know, the most minute detail, such as uh, like what how how the defender played the screen, if there was a switch on the screen, if the guy split through the screen, who the help defender was, if his hand was up to, to defend the shot. And you, you just can't get that data from, from sport view very easily or at all because it's not, a, you know, it's the camera watching the ball and the player is not a human eye. And uh, so from that data, they can get kind of 75 extra metrics, this company, um, to to help just quantify how good players are. And anything from, like, if you were, how many times you turn the ball over, were you in the air? Because um, that's one thing coaches really hate is in-air turnovers. Or how many times when there's a shot, when you were in the vicinity, you had your hand up. So things like that. And uh, so his, his point was uh, just that, yeah, less data is easier to work with, and we can add some of that subjectivity to to give some more analysis to the data instead of trying to develop these really complex algorithms to figure out the sport view data. Did they go into anything as far as the accuracy at all with Vantage? I, I worked with Vantage a little while back. I wrote some articles for them, had access to their data set, which in many cases was 
really excellent. My issue at the time that I and I compared notes with other people that were involved as well was that there were there were areas where because as you're saying it's subjective human uh, tracking effectively there were areas where I found the tracking to be really incomplete or or in some cases kind of wrong where the, a play would be getting tracked as one thing and I'd watch it and I'd say look I know what they're trying to apply that as and that's not what happened in that play like a lot of it, and that sort of thing did they go into at all what their sort of standards for error margin and for and checking again against uh, sort of other similar things were? Uh, the one thing that he said was that they have five of their analysts do every game, and so in that way they they compare if there's any uh, discrepancies between the five and they throw out, you know, <clears throat> statistically significant uh, instances, I guess. Um, but didn't focus on that too much, and it actually brings up an interesting experience there. During the Q&A, the, the Lakers, the head Lakers analytics guy, that liaison I was talking about, he actually kind of called out the guy on how he he showed a three-second clip of Kyrie Irving defending a screen and Jeff T, uh split right through this, the screen and the the big guy um, split right through this the uh, defenders and the Vantage guy had called it a switch, and the Lakers guy was like, well, it's not actually a switch. So, like, Kyrie just played it bad, and the health defender went too high, and so it was actually slipping, it was slipping through the screen. And so I guess in that way, the subjectivity of these analysts that don't have as many years of experience as coaches and their eyeballs when they're watching the game, that can uh, that can bring in some air. And the one, the part of my my article where I cover this really talks about both Sportview and Vantage have their own kind of merits and both can be really powerful in basketball analysis. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, I think that's interesting. Like some of this stuff, it really is subjective. Um, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how different teams and different systems track it. I want to ask you about another thing you, you said you learned in your piece uh, again, will be released on SaltCityHoops.com tomorrow about the wearable technology. That's kind of been in, in the news recently. Zach Lowe had a piece about it today, and it sounds like it was a big topic at this conference as well. Yeah, it, it was a kind of the most used buzzword, I think, that was thrown around. And uh, it's true, I saw that Zach Lowe from Grantland wrote an article on it today, and I'm kicking myself that, you know, you wait one extra day to write your article for <laughs> SaltCityHoops, and the national guy swoops in and, you know, steals your thunder. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's kind of a new frontier is, uh, is wearable technology. So, you know, the, the average Joe ha- has their Fitbit, and you can just imagine some of the technologies like Fitbit on st- steroids that some of these NBA teams uh, can use. And the specific one I know about is called Catapult Sports, and Zach Lowe uh, highlights them as well because uh, the NBA is actually doing going to do a study with the Mayo Clinic on how how effective these uh, and accurate these this catapult technology is. But it's basically a, a vest that a player wears um, with GPS chips in it, and it can and also um, kind of like heart rate monitors and other vital signs, so that teams can track how how hard a player is working in their workouts. Um, they can also it, the vest and the GPS actually tracks acceleration and deceleration and even the uh even kind of the the force of impact on certain parts of the body so if a, you know a player's putting too much weight on you know one knee or you know the, the possibilities are kind of endless and uh, one interesting thing i learned from the conference is that 
you can have player teams can make their players wear these in practice, but actually, according to the collective bargaining agreement, the players union hasn't uh, accepted yet accepted yet for players to wear it in the games. And uh, Zach Lowe kind of goes into some of the reasons of that, but that's it's kind of just tapping into that other side of athlete performance and sports medicine and trying to maximize these players that are almost assets to a team. Yeah, I found that part to be by far the most interesting part of Zach's piece is the, the because the, the like you said the ceiling for this is is almost endless. We could have so much more detailed information on these players' bodies that's just never been available in sports before. And what if, you know, the question at that point becomes, who gets access to this information? Does this get stored in a league-wide database that everybody, so I, if I'm a, a jazz executive, I can look at information on the team we're about to play and see yeah. that a, a guy's got a certain thing wrong? That, do agents get access to this? Because in their contract conversations, this could be a, a, teams could try and use this stuff as trump cards on teams all the time. Like, hey, look, the data says his his knee is really weak or so on and so forth. We don't want to pay him X amount of money. Th- this could have reverberations absolutely everywhere. Again, you can imagine just as an employer of, of you know, not uh, for an NBA team, you can imagine what that would be like to have your employer know something about your body that you wouldn't want them to know. You know, if if I have a knee injury and that makes my, I don't know, carrying UPS boxes around job um, means I'll only be likely to be in the, in the USPS, let's say, for five <laughs> more years. Maybe I don't get that 10-year contract. I don't know. I, I'm making this up. But you can still, you can imagine that the same reasons that you wouldn't want your employer to know your personal medical history, uh, the same is true for for NBA athletes. And so that was was Brad. Was that a kind of one of the big issues that came up with that subject? Was who? How do we regulate who has access to this, and how do we regulate how much it becomes a part of the rest of our of our NBA culture? In in effect, yeah. One interesting insight was the the point was made um, that technology kind of outpaces. Uh, scientific research and policy and, and this is an exact example of that where this technology you know has such a potential for positive things with NBA teams but kind of the players union is still trying to figure it out the NBA is doing a study on it and you're right the whole privacy issue so yeah it was just it was very interesting that uh, yeah that that set that uh, trend that technology can advance faster than certain areas certain other areas yeah i I completely agreed on how interesting that is all right well brad thank you so much for joining us we actually had you on longer for what i promised you so uh anyway (laughs) i it's just such a good interview you gave us a lot of things to think about um again your article will be on saltcityhoops.com tomorrow um kind of explaining all the things that you learned at the at that conference at the sports analytics summit in san francisco and again thank you so much for for sharing your insights with us on the show today yeah thanks for having me guys Thanks a lot, Brad. And and by the way, guys, I would like to make a, a very early prediction about Brad's article that's coming out tomorrow. And my prediction is that much in the way a couple small pieces of Laura Thompson's piece last week got kind of shared out nationally as a big uh, big deal, like the, the stuff about Darren Williams and Jerry Sloan, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think that a little bit of national pub will be given actually to what Brad wrote about the Lakers actually having an analytics department because I don't think there's actually too many people that really know that. No, I, that actually was announced um, in a in a press release by oh, the Lakers it? like last week or two weeks ago. Oh, I must have missed um, that. So that that has been announced that they actually do have an analytics department, and they announced even that these guys have been on the staff since 2011 or 2012 or whatever the case might be. Right. 
So it, it's not you know, as much of a, a gotcha kind of thing. Like the okay. one the one sentence headline doesn't work as well. But I I do think it is interesting uh, that people who uh, around the country who didn't get to go to this conference will want that first person perspective on on actually what went on because obviously there are a lot of interested parties in in basketball stats and uh, analytics from around the country. Absolutely, this stuff is so fascinating to me. Like I talked to Gordon Hayward really briefly last year. The Jazz have looked into a lot of sleep recovery sort of stuff with their players. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, Gordon. Just really briefly while we're in the locker room, uh, that he talked to me about. It's <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, <laughs> got caught in my go throat. Ahead, there. No, I, I, uh, I, I just I like my interest in this is is almost endless. Like it's there's <laughs> be, it's you the amount of information we could potentially learn is legitimately limitless. We could there you could actually identify things like Dante Exum's ACL injury before they happen because you could say he's look he's really weak here he's putting too much pressure on this muscle so on so forth that could have stuff like that down the line it's not impossible that you could actually prevent that stuff and and some of that stuff is not down the line you know you look at the like the force plates for example that the Jazz have or or that they have a P three uh, that actually see how much force you're putting on one leg versus another yeah or you know same thing with with arm movements or strength with hand grip and that sort of stuff where you know we didn't have that data even five ten years ago now all of a sudden we can see kind of these imbalances see where there are strengths and weaknesses in guys bodies uh and yeah you're right that this absolutely does have an impact on the kind of the decisions that you'd make the my question from a front office perspective is how do you weigh that sort of information like sure you know that, say, Dante Axum is putting more pressure on his left leg than his right leg due to, say, that sprained ankle that he had in summer league. I'm not saying that that's what happened with his ATL, right, ACL right. tear, but let's let's say that that's what did happen. How would you how would you use that? I mean, it, it there was the article Zach Lowe's article today said that the Warriors chose to rest Steph Curry and Clay Thompson in March and April because of the the fatigue that they had uh, right. on their bodies earlier in the season. Um, but then how do you weigh that versus, say, straight-up production, you know? Yeah, no, and and Zach put forth an, an incredibly intriguing scenario. Let's say you're a team that heavily embraces that catapult stuff, and it's Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals, and the catapult information is telling you that Steph Curry is at extreme critical exhaustion and should not be playing anymore because he's he's massively risking injury for himself and so on and so forth. What do you do? Do you tell like what if they had had this on LeBron in the finals last year and they were like LeBron? It's the second quarter and you're already like your chance of injury is already up five hundred percent because of how much you've exhausted yourself. What like what do you do? do teams but it's the finals at that point. You have to exactly. Go for it, right? So like, it could be at that point it become there could be a legitimate sort of fight or 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 divisiveness between a coach who's sitting here like this is my best player. I'm not taking him off the floor. Where at the same time the medical experts are like, okay, you're upping his injury chance by ten times right now. And maybe the and maybe who knows what the player wants in that situation? Because obviously the player wants to win, but he also doesn't want to be you know debilitated. Derrick Rose talked about this last year, where he wants his body to be around for him to you know be able to tell these stories to his grandkids. He doesn't want to go all out and destroy everything. And we're seeing this with football players as well. You know the. It seems like half of the 49ers defense retired this summer. Yeah. Um because of worries to their their bodies and kind of the long-term uh, complications of playing football. No question. Um it, it's these are real questions that I, I think depends on the on the human and and the the I don't know, the 
employers involved. And I just think it's super intriguing. Before we go to break, because we got like two minutes left, we did have a tweet really quick that I wanted to read here. Yeah, we do. Uh, it was from Riley O'Brien, and he asked both of us, curious to know, it's a little off topic, but who cares? Uh, curious to know, what do each of you most enjoy about covering Utah Jazz home games at Energy Solutions Arena? That's a good question. Uh, I don't think yeah. we get asked that all that often. You want to go first? No, because I can't think. I, I don't know. You don't know I, what your I favorite thing is? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of good things. Um, I know mine, so I can go first. Okay, you I go have, first. I have two. Uh, my my first, I guess three. The one is just overall being able to to see and associate with a bunch of people who I either really respect or really enjoy covering, mm-hmm. that being other jazz media or the jazz players and or coaches. And then the two main physical things that I enjoy doing the most are I love watching warm-ups. I'm that guy. I sit out there and watch both teams' warm-ups like as much as I possibly can. I think it's great. Even though you don't learn that much from it, I just think it's really fun to do. Yeah. Um, certain guys have certain really fun things they do in their warm-ups, and they make it enjoyable to watch. In fact, before he left town, Ennis Cantor was actually really fun to watch in warm-ups oh, because so he and Antonio fun. Lang would always go at it in the post for like 10 minutes. It was yep. it was a good time. Um, and then my other favorite thing is Quinn Snyder's pregame interview. Uh, Quinn Snyder is a genius. I could talk to that man for hours and hours about basketball, days and days, in fact. Um, I love his interviews. He's re- I've written this before. He's I have not heard that guy pan a single question, and I've heard him be asked some really stupid questions. <laughs> I, he's, he's, he, does, he will not pan you. He will not make, make you feel bad or pop you, if you will. Uh, he just doesn't do it. He treats every question as if it's an intelligently asked question, even those ones that aren't, and gives you a lucid, intelligent answer. I, I hope he stays like that his whole career. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and it, it is remarkable. And is, um, I will say, a great difference from the previous coach who did yeah. not always do, have that approach um, as he stands behind me he in does. his Sacramento Kings <laughs> little sticker. Anyway, Yours. I'm going to go ahead and take a break so I can brainstorm before we go on to the next <laughs> segment. And it's right. not that I have a lack of things. I'm trying to identify the, the biggest thing. So anyway, mm-hmm. thanks, Riley O'Brien, for the question. I'll have my answer next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, we're back on the Salt City Hoops show. I'm Andy Larson. Ben Dowsett joining me. Uh, We were asked a question going into the break from Riley O'Brien on Twitter. Curious to know what each of you most enjoy about covering a Utah Jazz home game at NOG Solutions Arena. Ben gave his answer. My answer is still... And this is what it's been since I was a fan, season tick holder, the whole thing. It's just when it gets exciting moments at Energy Solutions Arena, close games, um, fans on their seat, uh, on their stands, standing up, sitting, standing up on their seats even. Let's put it that way. <laughs> do people do that? Some people do that. Yeah. The, those people are frowned up by the ushers. But, you know, if it's the last <laughs> last possession, why not? Yeah. I, I'm officially pro standing on your seats. Anyway, yeah, that one's a good um, one. I mean, that's that's when uh, you know the goosebumps still still come. They yeah. they really do, and that's that's when it's most fun. Like that's when I wouldn't trade being at a jazz game for being anywhere on, in the world. Anyway, let's go around the NBA. Actually, a surprising amount of stuff to talk about around yeah. the NBA. So we're um, gonna rapid fire it because yeah, and we're only again ten days away from media day, so that's a lot of fun. Um, first of all, two rankings that I want to talk about. First, um. Sports on Earth, Michael's, Michael Pena did a uh, ranking of the starting point guards in the league. Trey Burke was last. That's <laughs> unfortunate. Also but not that shocking. Not that shocking. I mean, he was below Isaiah Kanan. That's a little bit surprising to me, right? <laughs> um, 
Anyway, this is this is Michael Pena's quote on Trey Burke, by the way. But Utah's Burke is a special kind of bad. It took Utah a season and a half to go from we just traded two first round picks for Trey Burke to Exum is everything. Understandable. Why? Burke's shot chart should be titled Stop What You're Doing and Go Take a Shower. He launches it from all over the place, the mid-range, in the paint, from the corner, etc., and from nowhere is he respected. In addition to bad offense, last year the Jazz had a bottom 10 defense with Burke on the court, and they paced the entire league in defensive rating when he sat. Not exactly a growing endorsement. See, people <laughs> but think none that of what I he said is false. Burke, but yeah, these these are facts. Like I, 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 I'm I'm nicer to trade than that. Yeah, it's true. Um, I wish I could argue more. I can't. <laughs> I, that pretty much all that is true. It's going to take some serious changes this year to show that there's really something different there. That's why, by the way, I would be surprised if Trey Burke was. I guess I wouldn't be surprised, but I still think Raul Neto is the most likely starting point guard for the Jazz next year. Okay. Um, because he doesn't, you know, take that many shots. Yeah. That's that's really what it comes down to. And then uh, there was a ranking of best players under 25 as well. I, b- I believe this was on Sports Illustrated. Ennis Cantor ranked number 13. Rudy Gobert, number 10. Derek Favors, number six. Then your top five is Bradley Beal, Bradley Beal sorry, number five. Andre Drummond, number four. Kyrie Irving, number three. Kawhi Leonard, number two. Anthony Davis, number one. I wish Thoughts? we had more time to go into this because I think Favors should be higher than Beal, but it takes time to get into that sort of stuff. Do you think he should so, be higher than Drummond, too? Maybe. I think you could make an argument that he could be as, as high as four on that list. He can't be higher than any of those top three, obviously, but you could make an argument that he could be. And I also think... First of all, it's good that somebody finally recognized Derek Favors for what how good how great he is and ranked him above Rudy Gobert at something. Not that he's necessarily better than Rudy Gobert, but just that they that they recognize that Favors is on that same tier, if not higher. Mm-hmm. That and uh, that, that Gobert only being three spots ahead of Cantor. I'm not exactly sure who was between them, but that was interesting. No, I I, I mean I think Cantor should probably be lower when you look at like plus minus, but I. I yeah. I think actually the seven, eight, and nine players. I can't remember who it was, but it was like Tobias Harris, uh, Victor Oladipo, and uh, they have those guys all above Gobert. Yeah, and I again, I okay. don't know if I agree with that. I, but, I'd probably put Fa- Gobert at seven, right behind Favors, if okay. you're going to have Favors there. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, Norris Cole, in actual NBA transaction news, took the qualifying offer. That means he'll make nearly three million dollars next year uh, to back up Drew Holiday with the Pelicans. That's you know uh, not a bad deal for Norris Cole and mm-hmm. and not terrible for the Pelicans either, given that it's only for one year. Yeah, works for them. A lot of point guards in the draft next year. If it doesn't work out, they can probably draft their new backup. Very true. Uh, Steve Nash, by the way, um, uh, speaking of point guards, was actually courted by the Dallas Mavericks, according to Mark Stein, to come back, which is a little bit surprising to me, given how many old point guards they have with Devin Harris, J.J. Barea, yeah. Darren Williams, and uh, <laughs> Raymond Felton. That's yeah. right. But, you know, whatever. Have have a fifth. Have a 41-year-old Steve Nash. Um, but will instead join the Warriors staff as a part-time player development coach. One interesting tidbit from Mark Stein's article, though, is that it's, uh, he reported that uh, Steve Nash had actually worked with Dante Exum a little bit. Did he say when? No, he didn't. He was kind of listed in a bunch of uh, a group of point guards, young point guards that Steve Nash had worked with. Interesting. Sounds like over the summer at some point. Um, I'm curious when and how that happened, but that's that's an interesting little tidbit. I wonder if yeah. the Jazz brought him in. I wonder if it was just like Steve Nash was in Vegas during summer league. You know, it could be a million different things. I'm I'm curious what actually went down there. And Golden State totally needed more shooting coaches over there because they <laughs> they definitely don't have enough former shooting greats on their coaching staff. Yeah, it's awesome that him and Steph Curry will be hanging out more. Seriously, they they can have shooting contests with those two, and then Clay Thompson and Steve Kerr. 
That's like yeah. ten of the. That's like four of the ten most accurate three point volume three point shooters in history. That's a very <laughs> good point. Yeah, or something. No, it's that's true. I, Sh- I shooting drills with those guys. <laughs> three of the top five shooters in NBA history are there. Yeah, you could say that. Like Nash and Kerr. Yeah, who you could say that. Like Ray Allen and Reggie Miller are the only other people that I would put in that conversation with Kerr, Curry, and Nash. Yeah, you could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Those should be fun. Um, rookie Montrez Harrell. This is a, a little bit of a fun story. Pulled somebody out of an overturned vehicle this weekend. Like, vehicle upside down. Montrez Harrell just is, is driving by, and he pulls out. Uh, it saves a guy's life. Like, Good on you, Montrez. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's the story, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Houston Rockets debuted new uniforms, and they are ugly. They're terrible. Uh, th- I don't so, think I've seen a single person say anything but these jerseys are terrible. So they have a black one that's going to be released starting in the 2016-17 season. That doesn't look awful. When your black um, alternate is the best jersey you've got, your jerseys are in rough shape, man. But, yeah, they're, they're, uh, is it their home one that's going to be the red, the McDonald's colors? Yeah, whichever Clutch one that City was. On the front? Oh, like, God. First of all, have your team, uh, you can't have a team city nickname on the front of your jersey. No. Like, what, what unless are you you're doing Portland, there? Unless you're Portland with Rip City. That's the only exception. Even then, I don't like that jersey. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm a fan of that jersey, but yeah. And B, it just needs to look better than the McDonald's jersey does. Well, which and Rip City bad. is actually a nickname for the Portland Trailblazers, where when has Clutch City ever been anything that anyone refers to the Houston Rockets by in history? I love how much, by the way, I, I mean, I don't think there's an answer to that. I, I love how much the Rockets hate Rockets fans hate jazz fans, and there's not <laughs> that sort of uh, anger coming from the other side. They just like hate us for ninety seven, ninety eight, and then, uh, or I should the, say, ninety six, ninety seven, and the, the exactly the T Mac years. I believe that's oh seven and oh eight, like yeah, the two years straight where we beat them. Yeah, they hate uh, Rockets fans. Like the j- Jazz are their number one enemy, and for the Jazz, it's like, eh, you're another Western Conference opponent. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Their silver jerseys, too, by the way, have, like, checkerboards on the side, which is, is a weird thing. I don't know. Just, Incredibly weird jerseys. Yeah. I don't know who they paid to design them, but anyway. Um, in sad news, Moses Malone died at 60 uh, over the weekend. This was really unexpected. He was actually at the NBA Hall of Fame uh, ceremony this weekend, yeah. so then dying a couple days later is, is um, surprising. Died in his sleep. Uh, one of the you can make a case, and I think it's a fair one, that he's a top fifteen player of all time. Yep, uh, was the first player actually taken from high school to professional basketball when the Utah Stars did it with him. Yep. Um, a, a tremendous rebounder. You can again probably first or second best rebounder in league history. Uh, Rodman's the only other guy that's, in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, will be missed. He was actually also the last ABA player to play in the NBA. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Until I think '94, oh, okay. uh, which is an incredible like longevity from a guy. Um, you know, longevity. you play that many thank longevity. You. Thank you, longevity. <laughs> what did I say? Longevity. Oh, that was weird. <laughs> um, yeah, incredible longevity. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not really how you pronounce the word. Um, from from Moses Malone. Good. I mean, not good he died, but remember Moses Malone. Yep, great man. Um, moving on, Nets have a local, new local TV deal that pays them $40 million a year. This basically guarantees profitability for them, takes away another team that Adam Silver had said was not profitable. Quite frankly, I don't know who's left in the NBA that's not profitable after this new TV deal. Yeah, it's got to basically be everybody at this point. 
Uh, and it's just unfortunate that Jazz's TV deal was signed for as long of a time period that it was. Yeah. We're still probably four-ish years away from being able to renegotiate that, which is going to provide a huge benefit to the amount of money the Jazz receive um, in terms, you know, double-digit multi, um, double-digit millions of dollars per year once the Jazz are able to renegotiate that contract. Yeah. Uh, NBA rank, by the way, is starting. I'm starting oh, to vote on it. Hashtag NBA rank. Everybody's favorite uh, cause of Twitter arguments everywhere. I know what my Twitter will be screaming about for the next two weeks or whatever. Kobe Bryant? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I so it's interesting. Cause basically, the way it works is it presents you with two players and asks, who do you think will be better in 2015-16? And basically tries to get people who are in the same range based on other voters and and. Uh, expected RPM and that sort of thing. And that's how it does the full rankings, right? That's how it ranks? Yeah, and then okay. it puts them on all, all on a scale and then spits it out. So my favorite question that I got, and you know, most of, most of the time you get questions that are pretty close and you have to make some hard judgment calls. My question that I got was Kobe Bryant or Corey Joseph? You voted for Corey Joseph, player? right? It, uh, there's a real case that it's <laughs> going to be Corey Joseph. Yeah. Like. I, I didn't tweet that because I want to live, but the the and the Kobe stands would absolutely like come after me and murder my family. But okay, probably not. But uh, like that's about how impactful it's fair to say Kobe Bryant can be expected to be next season because of how old he is and, and if how not, injury prone he was over the last three seasons. And he could be even more damaging while he's on the court if he shoots like he did yeah. last year and shoots thirty seven percent. And he is did. not a good defender anymore. And exactly, I mean he's. Corey Joseph isn't jacking up 25 shots a game right. and sabotaging your offense. And again, this is basically by RPM, how your team does while you're on the floor, adjusted yeah. by your teammates and whatever else, um, and, and the quality of your opposition. It's easy to see Corey Joseph having a higher RPM and, and um, wins above replacement next year than, than Kobe Bryant. Yeah, no question. Anyway, wanted to talk about that. Speaking of the Lakers, they also expressed interest in point guard Sebastian Telfair, a name I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> We didn't ask for it. No, I mean, it says LOL Lakers in there. I, I think that's fair. Um, Sebastian yeah, Telfair. Whatever happened to Bassey Telfair? Well, he wasn't good enough to play in the NBA. Yeah. So that the Lakers are looking at him. Good job, analytics department. That <laughs> yeah. exists. Of course, that's from a Sheridan Hoops source, which far be it for me to talk negatively on anyone else's sources because I have very few of my own, but they've been wrong a few times before, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, they're probably not just making it up, but this is the, again, this is the sort of thing like when you see rumors like this, this can literally be like Telfair's agent happened to be on the phone with Mitch Kupchak about something else. And they happened to talk about Telfair and Kupchak happened to be like, Hey, if he's in town, tell him to come work out with us and we'll take a look at him. And then his agent was like, Hey, I should find a source somewhere and call them and tell them that Sebastian Telfair is going to work out for us. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be probably best case scenario for where this rumor yeah, came from. Yeah, like worst like, case, like someone was joking about Sebastian Telfair somewhere and, yeah. and happened to be uh, within earshot of somebody, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite, by the way, while we've got the LOL Lakers sound on, my favorite uh, LOL Lakers moment that I was reminded of this week, we were talking to Byron Scott he, in this Baxter Holmes piece from, uh, I believe it was last October. He was asked about the shooting three-point shots and, and the kind of the spread offenses that have been so successful in the NBA, most notably the Golden State Warriors and San Antonio Spurs. Um, Byron Scott was asked, do you believe in that style? He says, I don't believe it wins championships. It gets you to the playoffs. Then Baxter Holmes, next sentence, all by itself. Great writing. Seven of the last NBA champions led all at playoff games. In Seven of the last eight. 
Seven of the last eight NBA champions led all playoff games in three-point attempts and makes. So, about that, Byron. Convincing. Yeah. Byron Scott, as your head coach, puts a ceiling on how well you can do. Pretty much. Full stop. Yeah. Anyway, that's our LOL Lakers segment, and indeed our Around the NBA segment. We've got one more break left in the show. Next, we're going to be talking about Derek Favors had a Q&A on Facebook. We're going to be talking about the most interesting answers on that Q&A. Some of them were pretty fun. That's next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Just drink it in. That's a little bit of the Jazz Brothers. Thurl Bailey leading, Carl Malone coming in after. This is um, so fantastic. It's, it's amazing. Just that this is a thing. Just oh, by the way, the Jazz got together and created a, a blues band. Um, just happened. It's real story. I believe '89 season uh, they came together and did this. I mean, I want this year's Jazz to do that. I, I don't have high expectations. Just come together, start being a touring band of singers. I don't see anything unreasonable about that request. <laughs> it's so great. Anyway, let's talk about this Derek Favors Q&A. He hosted one on Facebook earlier today. He is so um, excellent in these types of things. Like, yeah. his answers are just fantastic. Yeah, okay. So let, let's just go through them in, in the order I have them. Uh, first of all, our friend Diana Allen, SLC Dunk Writer, asked, what do you like best about Coach Snyder? Derek Favor said, pregame speech. I want to know more about Coach yeah, Snyder's pregame speech. This is now like, officially on my list of questions yeah, for him for this I, season. I have a literal list of questions that I keep you know, uh, figuring out what I'm going to ask guys at, at each of these points. And yeah. one of the first ones I'm going to ask is, you know, what do you like best about Coach Snyder? No, not that. Sorry. What do you like? What do you like about his pregame speeches? Yeah, is he like a great a motivator that we don't know about? There's a great pregame speech of his online when he was a Missouri coach, where he's just like stalking around the the locker room, like shouting about uh, I don't know, being a Missouri man or something. It's huh. find it on YouTube if you you have. I could. Seen it. I mean, he definitely has the speaking chops to be one of those types of guys. No question. He's got the intensity and he's got the sort of the public speaking ability. Like, yes. N- no question. Now, I think it's an open question whether or not pregame speeches matter, but regardless. Yeah. Um, for another question. Why must you come into Buffalo Wild Wings where I work and order 100-plus wings between <laughs> you and your brother? That's awesome. Which is, which is awesome. First of all, the Derek Favors did that, just going into Buffalo Wild Wings yeah. and, In his response. and ordering 100. And he said, quote-unquote, we was hungry. Which, <laughs> we was hungry. Oh, you know, sure. <laughs> That's the whole answer. <laughs> I just, 50 wings each is so many wings. That's an insane number of wings. That's, yeah. There, I, mean, I mean, is his picture on the wall that he eat, win a contest? I mean, guys like Derek got to eat like 5,000 calories a day. That's Still, like nothing. That's a snack. That's that's less. <laughs> 50 wings is more than 5,000 calories. Wait, no, it isn't. Is, is 50 wings more than 5,000 calories? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I would sure hope not. That would mean <laughs> that one wing is... 100 calories. 10 wings is 1,000. No. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that seems high. Yeah, that's a bit high. <laughs> okay, fine. Regardless, it's a lot. 
Uh, from the end of the game t- last season to the first game of this season, who do you think will be the most improved player on the Utah Jazz? Answers: The most improved player on the team, improved player on the team this year will be Derek Favors. Lol. Lol. I, I don't see any way that he's the most improved player. Quite frankly, if he is, he's definitely an All Star. Yep. Uh, our, our friend Mizuho Nishio, um, famous on Twitter and, and for his incredible artwork of jazz players and players around the NBA, asked, how has your life changed since your babies were born? Do you interact with your babies? Which is just, How do you interact with your babies? How do you interact with your babies? Yes, thank you. Much more appropriate. Um, do, you, do you interact do you with your babies? Your babies? Nah, man, not really. That's not what he says. Indeed, he says, my life changed in a way I never expected. Those girls are my everything, and I'm very hands-on and became a diaper-changing pro on day one. On day one. He's, so he does develop skills. Yep, an athletic monster. What is your favorite restaurant in SLC? Derek Favors answers Ruth, Chris, and Chili's. There's <laughs> a slight dichotomy there. <laughs> My yeah, goodness. <laughs> that's like, I mean, Chili's is a little bit discouraging. Um, My I, two favorite hotels are the New York Ritz-Carlton and the Super 8 <laughs> in, in, Rock, in Rock Springs, Wyoming. <laughs> like, my ex-girlfriend's favorite restaurant was Chili's because of the chips and margaritas, which I, I never Fair. quite uh, – like, I get that. But the the rest of the food is not good enough. It's just not to be your favorite restaurant. I mean, it's, it's like when how Gordon Hayward's favorite restaurants are Olive Garden and Subway. Like, Yeah. I'm sorry, bit, I don't know if that's still the case. There. It was when he was a rookie and okay. sophomore in the league. You know, I've never been still. to Roos Chris. I haven't either. I like, hear nothing about how awesome it is, and I love steak, but I've never been there. Them's, them's rich people food. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Um, another question. What part of your game have you improved the most on on this offseason? Go Jazz says, I can't give away my secret, but I've added a new weapon to my offensive game. What could this conceivably be? If it's not a corner three, which we're assuming it's not based on what we heard earlier. Yeah. And his, his, what next, is it? his next question, by the way, since this is, this is part of it, you said you're a three point shooter after hitting a three last season. Have you been working to expand that part of your game? He says, I've worked all summer on the corner three, but I don't think coach will let me get that many attempts. So that tells me that his secret offensive weapon is not the corner three. Yeah. So what? Yeah. What is it? What What else does he have? Is it, is it is, new is stuff going, in the post? I mean, maybe it, it could be. Maybe he's working on the floater too that Rudy's working on. Like we haven't seen that, right? Maybe yeah. maybe it's more of a hook shot. Like he's got a an little actual bit of a hook sky, shot like an actual sky hook. Maybe it's that. Maybe. But still, Although I, that's not even more useful than his push shot that he's got. Yeah, I don't, I don't really want him to take that. Yeah, I'm interested to see what this is or if he's putting us on. And, and you know, maybe it's a 20 foot jump shot. Yeah, I can which, see that. Although you know, if you're Again, shooting 20 foot already, jump shots, he's already done that. Shoot threes. Like if if you're working, if you're shooting 20 foot jump shots, just step back a couple steps and shoot the three. Yeah, I'm curious what the secret offensive weapon is that he's he's added in. Um, very curious. What could it be? I mean, that, that's that's question number two to ask him is what your secret offensive weapon is. Yeah, it's on the list. I mean, I guess if he's already been asked about it, maybe he won't tell us. But yeah, at some, some point, he has to show it in the game, right? Like, the the season's coming soon. Yeah. We're only two and a half weeks away from the first preseason game for the Utah Jazz. And, you know, he didn't necessarily say that – oh, he did say offensive game. Just kidding. Sorry, I was looking at the wrong question and thought that he didn't specify offensive game yep, and thought that maybe it was game, so. some part of his defense. But No, no but okay. still. Yeah. Yep, offensive game. Hmm. I, I'm I'm curious to see what that is. Anyway – that's our show for today. Thank you, Derek Favors, for the questions. <laughs> Thank you, Brad Tilly, for joining us earlier in the show. If you missed any of the show, by the way, you can catch it online where the, the podcast is on iTunes and Stitcher. By the way, we're doing great in the Stitcher list. We're in the top 100 sports podcasts in the country. Thank, Thank you, you guys, guys so much for listening to that. Uh, of course, you can also listen to it on saltcityhoops.com or ESPN700sports.com. Uh, again, some great content. We're gonna we talked about the ceilings and floors of the jazz players earlier today, and of course Rudy Gobert's performance in EuroBasket. That's our show. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. You're listening to ESPN 700, Utah's number one sports talk.